on the record flips to the B-side. Everyone has a hidden side, a side that's a little bit different. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month on B-Side, we let it all hang out. We'd start grabbing bugs out of the air and eating them, you know, just to freak people out, you know, just like, ew, ew, what are you doing? <laughs> and then show them on our tongues, chewed up bugs. Retired hippie freaks, a guy who collects skulls from dead animals for fun, and a modern-day carnival sideshow. Step right up and get your freaks and geeks right here, as On the Record flips to the B-side. Welcome to B-side. I'm Mia Lobel. When I was in high school, the words freak and geek were synonymous, and I was one of them. Smart and awkward and certainly not part of the in crowd. All my friends and I were in the drama club and worked on the literary magazine. We wore crazy clothes and dyed our hair and did our best to stand out from the crowd. Now, most of us have, let's say, grown into ourselves and learned to express ourselves in more subtle ways. It's not that we've changed so much on the inside, but we don't feel such a need to broadcast our feelings of being different in such a public way anymore. Public weirdness is not such a big deal in Berkeley, California, where once a year the city holds a festival where people can embrace their wacky and wild sides. Besides Dave Gilson and I decided to check out the How Berkeley Can You Be Festival and maybe catch some people who hadn't buried their freaky, geeky selves quite so deeply. What do you think we're going to see? I've actually never been to the festival itself, so I have no idea what to expect. I'm a little afraid, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I, I just, you know, <laughs> my biggest fear is can summed up in two words, naked people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, normally when we're walking around with a big phallic microphone, like we're the strangest people around, so this will be a nice change. <laughs> Fit right in. <laughs> exactly. The first people we run into at the festival pretty much confirm our worst fears. They're wearing nothing but deer skins. This one's got a hole in it. I got it over my head. I got another two pieces wrapped around me. I got a skirt. It's a wonderful, comfortable thing, you know. Deerskin dude and his wife try to explain the urban caveman getup. We're primitive people, you know. We're we're pagans. We're believing still in in Tar, father, and and psyche, or saw, or Ra, our mother, you know. Got that? We're the children. It used to be that the term freak was used to describe people who were physically different. People born with a congenital defect or disfigured in some way, like conjoined twins, bearded ladies, or dwarves and midgets. Some of them ended up as circus attractions, labeled sideshow freaks, whether they liked it or not. But when Caitlin Kim went to New York's Coney Island, she found that the sideshow freaks of today have a little more say in the matter. He's going around the world as the man who tattooed his face with outer space, but that's not all. You see, you're going to find out just how he earned his nickname here as the pain-proof man. So please welcome him up to the stage. It's E. Nicky, the torture cave. Uh, my name is Eduardo, but everybody knows me as Eek, which is E-A-K, and I'm the pain-proof man. Eek chose to be different. He wasn't born a pinhead or a giant or a dwarf. Instead, he's tattooed almost every inch of his body, including a beautiful cosmic design covering his bald head, his nose, his eyelids, everything. And if that's not enough, he also likes to squeeze himself in between two beds of rusty nails for fun. 
but what really hurts him is being called a freak. I'm very big on the whole um, thing of um, freak versus non-freak and the fact that I really don't consider there's any freaks, but uh, we are human beings, but at the same time, uh, people have phobias to certain things and they're always willing to come and gawk at the people who do the things that they have a phobia of. Eek believes we're a gawking society. Whether it's rubbernecking past a car accident or staring at a two-headed girl, people like to see strange or sometimes icky things and be glad it's not them. And even though Eek is gainfully employed as a Coney Island sideshow freak, he doesn't consider himself to be different, and he wants his audience to think twice about seeing him as just another weirdo. Most of you by now in this auditorium have formed an opinion about me, a judgment. You think you reckon you might know what I am like. Well, let me tell you something. Almost everything you think about me is wrong. See, I work harder than most of you. I pay my bills. I love my family. I adore my cat. Freak is all in your imagination. But some of Eek's sideshow colleagues are more willing to embrace their, well, freakishness. Outside of here, yes, I'm known as Angelica, and here I'm Insectivora. As you might have guessed from her stage name, Insectivora's act involves eating bugs. I've always eaten bugs, just, you know, like, because like I was worked at Burning Man Festival, and me and, like, you know, some other little crazy nutcase out there in the desert, we'd start grabbing bugs out of the air and eating them, you know, just to freak people out, you know, just like, hey, ew, ew, what are you doing? and then show them on our tongues, chewed up bugs. You know that rule about chewing with your mouth closed? Well, Insectivora breaks it just to make her audience cringe in disgust. Oh, if I could eat them, you could look at them. On the menu today are crickets, mealworms, and nightcrawlers. Insectivora says crickets taste like whatever you feed them, mealworms are kind of nutty, and nightcrawlers taste horrible. If eating bugs isn't enough for her to be a freak in your book, she too has freakishness written all over her body. She has an intricate Maori-like design tattooed over half of her face and more than a dozen piercings. Many of the freaks here at Coney Island harbored dreams of joining the circus, but not Insectivora. She met some sideshow freaks at a tattoo convention, and well, the rest is history. They're like, you're not going back to Minneapolis, and they kidnapped me, and here I am. Insectivora has no problem being labeled a freak, because as far as she's concerned, nobody's normal. You know, whether it's worn on, on your sleeve or something inside your brain, the way you think or function, somebody, everybody's got something different about them. One thing that's not so different about them is the fact that these freaks are doing pretty well for themselves. They have jobs they love, and many of them have degrees from prestigious schools like Yale and NYU. And for them, Coney Island is the Carnegie Hall of sideshows. They love it so much they've even started a sideshow school where anyone can learn to swallow swords, eat fire, and contort their bodies into weird and uncomfortable-looking positions. And along the way, students might even learn to embrace the freakishness within themselves. But for those who aren't quite ready to become a full-time freak just yet, the Coney Island sideshow always beckons. The sword swallower, the human blockhead, the electric lady. For B-Side, I'm Caitlin Kim. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked 
When you're unwanted, streets are uneven. When you're down, when you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange, no one remembers your name. When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange, people are strange. When you're a stranger, faces look ugly. When you're alone, women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven. When you're down. say that the Coney Island freaks are at the height of their careers. But what happens when their star fades? Maybe they'll follow the footsteps of the members of the cult San Francisco theater troupe, the Cockettes. At the height of their popularity in the early 70s, the Cockettes set the standard for wild and exotic behavior in Northern California and beyond. But these days, the troupe's stars have settled into a somewhat mellower lifestyle. Peter Crimmins has the story. They were the Coquettes, a troupe of hippie freaks and drag queens with thrift store dresses and glitter in their hair who almost revolutionized American theater. They were the remains of the Summer of Love who put on cabaret-style stage shows filled with gender-bending free love and a lot of LSD. A selection of freaks and wanderers who touched down in San Francisco, gestated in housing communes, and launched a hotbed of undisciplined creativity into a moment of national fame. I just can't end this endless masturbation of mine. This troupe of gay, straight, and curious young men and women began an experiment in egalitarian theater. Everyone was included in the mix. The shows were planned and created by committee. To everything that anybody said, we'd go, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. So it's like a big improv game where you have to say yes to everything. <laughs> That's Scrumbly, who was the principal music arranger. Sitting in his modest Oakland home, he and fellow former Coquette Sweet Pam remember the self-indulgent freedom that was the Coquette stock and trade. You could come and do anything you want, act out almost any fantasy. Somebody would say, well, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I've been wanting to be Cleopatra. Why don't we have an Egyptian show? <laughs> I was a singing ear in one show. Yeah, a singing ear. When we met, it was 1957. He promised me a little bit of heaven. Like most people entering their 50s, Scrumbly and Sweet Pam no longer live as crazy as they once did. They have jobs and car payments and mortgages. You probably couldn't tell that they influenced the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the punk rock of the New York Dolls. In three years, the Coquettes created 20 original shows featuring random acts of nudity and chaotic improvisation. Imagine a line of bathing beauties dancing with gigantic jewels on their heads to the singing of five Maurice Chevaliers and five Edith Piaf's, all on stage at once. Hitting a cue wasn't important. Staying in key was secondary. The audience was half of them were stoned, or more than half were stoned, and they were our peers. They didn't come to see a professional show. It was more like a yeah. party. Yeah, it's like a big party and... Uh, Okay, so a few brave souls from the party get up there in front of everybody and do some crazy funny things. And sometimes it was really good funny things, and sometimes it 
you know, was just kind of stupid. And that was good, too, that it was just stupid. Their raucous style was the toast of the San Francisco underground, but it didn't fly well outside the Bay Area. After Rolling Stone published a story on the Cockettes, New York called. The cross-dressing polysexual troupe flew across the country to put on a show and party with Andy Warhol's A-list. But the show was a huge flop. The East Coast cognoscenti turned a cold shoulder to them. Nevertheless, the unflappable Cockettes returned home triumphant. Oh, well, we came back with all this energy and the from everything we experienced. The shows were still selling out in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And everything was just the same as if we had never gone to New York. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We could have gone on for another three, four years. Who knows? Well, what stopped the Cockettes from going on? It just felt like it was the end. But in fact, we did go on, but not build as the Cockettes because we started performing for several but more years wanna, after Palace. We didn't theater. want to be tied to the name and the reputation. We weren't called and, the Cockettes anymore. And keeping the same people, we wanted to, you know, be in different configurations and not always have to use this mass baggage, you know, to carry with it. Is there still some of the cockettes in you? I mean, is that something that you've left behind? Or is there still some of the adolescent in everyone? <laughs> or the freak? I hope. There's only no co cockettes left if you deny ever being one. <laughs> right? I guess so. I got tired of dressing up all the time. Well, I got tired of talking about it. You know, it just seemed like... It was time to do something new, you know, after a while. And some people retained the identity forever and never got another identity, which I thought yeah. was a little bit questionable. But, um, you know, you just have to move on. Their real names are Richard Colwyn and Pam Tent, although Richard's friends still call him Scrumbly. He continues to work professionally in musical theater. After performing on stage through most of the 1970s, Pam now works at a lumber company and says she still trolls thrift stores looking for slightly gaudy bargains. They are proud of the small legacy they left for American culture, even if it's only remembered as a lingering hangover of a wild party. I'm wondering if you, Pam, remember the Singing Ear song. Do you remember how that goes at all? Yes, but I wouldn't sing it now for one million dollars. Oh, <laughs> for B-Side, I'm Peter Crimmins. You are listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-Side. Yeah, the makeup on his face Listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're taking a look at freaks and geeks. As B-Side's Dave Gelson and I cruise through the How Berkeley Can You Be Festival, we find all kinds of folks who've embraced their freaky and geeky sides. Like this couple cruising down the street on a motorized lazy boy. And the Phenomenauts Cadets, a punk rock band from outer space, 
rocking out in front of their intergalactic RV. The spirit of the day is probably best captured by the dozens of art cars parked nearby. This car, driven by Marilyn Dreampiece, is covered from bumper to bumper in hundreds of kids' toys and action figures, gobs of paint, and really strong glue. Well, it's called Come Play With Me because everything on it is interactive or musical or both. Like Liberace, for example, is both, okay? <laughs> Underneath all these toys and talking animals is a 1973 BMW that would make a car collector drool. Dave and I start fantasizing about how we could decorate our respective cars. Feathers and fortune cookie messages come to mind. But neither of us can actually imagine driving around town like that. Marilyn hopes we'll reconsider. Folks say, well, I'm like too shy or too phobic of people and stuff, and I'm actually a very shy person, and it has changed my life because you can't go to the health food store without making a lot of new friends, you know? And people just start smiling and waving and saying, thank you for this car. And you get these cool notes on your car and stuff. You know, you made my day. So I think it's therapeutic. Some people decorate their cars, some see a shrink, and at least one guy wanders the beaches of Northern California in search of dead animals. Rose Hoban introduces us to a man with a hobby that's part science, part obsession. You could say he's part freak and part geek. When most people see a dead animal on the beach, they give it a wide berth. Not Ray Bandar. When he comes across the decaying carcass of an elephant seal, he heads straight for it and sets down his yellow knapsack full of tools. I bring a bunch of knives and a sharpener and a little fork to scoop out brain tissue. Ray snaps on a pair of latex gloves and sizes up the situation. This guy's been dead for weeks and probably floating most of that time. Then he gets to work, cutting away at the rotting flesh to reach the bones underneath. It takes a while. The seal was a full-grown male, about 12 feet long, and easily weighed several thousand pounds. And once I can get this skull rolled over, it'll take a while, then I can get on the underside and cut through some of the ligaments and tendons. He has only one thing in mind, getting that skull. The muscle tissue in some parts is just semi-fluid here. There's still a lot of tendons to cut through. The smell is horrible, and I have to step away to catch some fresh air a couple times over the two hours he spends cutting away at the carcass. But Ray is unfazed. He's been gathering skulls from dead animals for more than 40 years. Well, I've actually collected, well, more than 6,000 animals, easy. Uh, and I've probably, uh, I've cut up and collected the skulls from more California sea lions than any other person alive, more than 1,400. Park rangers up and down the California coast no Ray's tall frame and tattered blue jacket. They even call him when a dead animal washes up on shore, like today. After severing the skull from the body, Ray wraps it in plastic bags and stuffs it in his knapsack. He'll haul the 30-pound skull back to a laboratory at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. There, beetle larvae will finish the job of cleaning rotten flesh from the bones. Ray hooked up with the Academy in the 1950s when he was studying to become a high school biology teacher. 
early specimens he collected went into his classroom. But as his habit expanded, he started volunteering for the academy and donating the skulls. Now the academy has Ray Bandar's life's work on display. His collection is the basis for a new exhibit about skulls. Ray walks me through the exhibit one afternoon and starts off with his collection of California sea lion skulls. On the wall, I forget the length of the wall, but it's maybe 90 feet long. And uh, originally we had uh, 860 California sea lion skulls mounted on it in a beautiful undulating pattern, looking like a wave of sea lion skulls, all slightly uh, different in angles as they face you. Ray's collecting has taken him beyond the West Coast to Mexico, Africa, Australia, and the Arctic. As a matter of fact, Ray's never gone anywhere where he didn't collect something. I think that's one of the complaints my wife has. That I've never gone on a field trip without trying to collect. Although uh, working the Cascades, I still uh, I found the roadkill stuff to collect. It strikes me that this is like an obsession. <laughs> Gee, I don't know. <laughs> Some people think it's an obsession. Maybe obsession could explain the 1,500 skulls in the exhibit, but Ray studied art when he was young and says that bones are nature's sculpture, which could also explain why his house is decorated with them. The house is actually an art museum and natural history museum and the bone palace. <laughs> Where do you live in your house? Oh, uh, I have uh, plenty of place to live. There are bones on, on all three levels. There are skulls and bones in the, in the bathroom, in the, in the dinette, in the uh, front room, in the dining room, the bedroom, the hallways, the entranceway, and down below in the middle level, and uh, the third level has thousands of skulls on display. It's quite the sight. Even the bathtub contains moose antlers all collected in Ray's spare time. He says he's not sure why he cut the head off that first harbor seal in 1953, but since then, he's never let up and doesn't plan to stop anytime soon. In a month and a half, I'll be 75. So isn't it time to quit? Hell no. As long as my legs still hold up and there's still stuff on the beaches, I'm going to work the beaches. As long as there's still stuff to get from the zoos, I'll be collecting stuff. The products of Ray's obsession will remain on display until the end of 2003, when the Academy of Sciences closes for renovation. When it reopens, there'll be a permanent exhibit dedicated to Ray's bones. For B-Side, I'm Rose Hoban. earlier that I used to be a geek. Okay, maybe I still am. And I'm comfortable with that, but I'm not going to go it alone. B-Side contributor Sarah Neal gets to share the geek spotlight with me. She tells us about her young, modern, underground scene of bridge players. Yep, you heard me right. She plays bridge. 
and she's still decades away from joining the AARP. Bridge is like a sport. It's intense to be really good. You have to be a genius or give up the rest of your life or both. Tonight's game is between my husband Paul and me and our friends Carolyn and Mark. Three hearts. Pass. Four diamonds. Pass. Four no trump. Pass. Five diamonds. <laughs> Pass. Five no trump. There are, in total, 14 of us that play on a regular basis. We're all 20-somethings with normal social lives, that is, in between our bridge matches. Sometimes we spend entire weekends playing bridge, starting with a game from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Thursday, four hours after a party Friday night, six hours before a party Saturday, and all day Sunday. It's safe to say we're pretty obsessed, but that's what happens when you learn to play bridge. The game is so addictive that I think it would be played by everyone everywhere if it weren't so difficult to learn. You don't always need 13 points to open a hand. Sometimes you could have 10 points, so but you could have a really The object long is to define the trump suit that you will use and the number of tricks that you can take. Um, and uh, then if you say one heart, then you should have five hearts at least, although some people play with just four hearts. It's not uh, that complicated. Now, if you didn't understand that, let me explain. Bridge has a very special language, a language that can accurately describe any combination of cards you could possibly be dealt. And you don't have to be over 50 to find this language fascinating. You just need 50 years of practice to use it well. My bridge group isn't really fabulously good or anything, but we make time for it. A lot of time. What was the longest bridge game you ever played? I don't know, 12 hours somewhere in there? That's 12 hours straight. There's not too many things anyone would do for 12 hours. We know there's something a little fanatical about our love for the game, but sometimes we choose to keep that to ourselves. I don't exactly drop that in casual conversation because there are a lot of people who don't know what bridge is, for one thing, and then those who have a fair inkling of what it is will often sort of second-guess your personality based on that admission. See, Paul reads a lot of bridge books and studies different bridge hands in the newspaper. I think Paul's obsessed. Mark's the newcomer in the group. He's a little overwhelmed by Paul's intensity. Four hearts. Pass. 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 But he's been playing since high school. This is just something he grew up with. Everyone has free time and needs to have some sort of entertainment. That's why the prevalence of television, you know. We don't have a television. We play bridge. Of course there is a downside to all this bridge playing. Our non-bridge friends, and there are a couple of holdouts, don't call us as often as they used to. They've started calling us freaks, and they've kind of banded together in an anti-bridge coalition. Nathan's their spokesman. He makes us promise not to play before he comes to our parties. There's really nothing you can do as an outsider when someone's playing bridge because it's much like a uh, some sort of a weird cult. You trump the five and then throw out in ten and then eight to the five and yes. And then everyone says, oh, of course, yes, that's what's, that's what's happening. But to an outsider, it, it sounds like gibberish. Nathan just doesn't get it. If he only knew how it felt, he'd understand why Carolyn is still excited about a game she played seven years ago. 
we rocked the house and especially it was because of some very wicked bidding there was a seven spade doubled redoubled bid and made it was fantastic non-bridge players are really missing out i think you guys should really take the plunge go ahead buy a bridge book call in sick for a week Pull out the martini fixings, dust off a couple decks of cards, indulge yourselves just once. You'll never go back, I promise you. It's a one-way ticket to the most gratifying obsession in the world. For B-Side, this is Sarah, 7 No Trump, Neil. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough for counting When the dealing's done That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on December 25th with an archive edition. We know you won't be listening. In the meantime, On the Record returns December 11th. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. And when he finished speaking, he turned back toward the window, crushed out a cigarette, faded off to sleep. And somewhere in the darkness, the gambler, he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got to know when to hold up, know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough to count. When the deal is done, you got to know when to hold up. Sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting. When the dealing's done, you got to know when to hold up, know 